0: You are listening to highlights from a creative process interview with Florian Hofmeister. This podcast is supported by the Jan michelsky Foundation. So, after high school, I did a bit of traveling and somehow came back wanting to kind of focus on what to study or what to do. And by pure chance, I thought, oh, I want to follow this film idea. And I went to Berlin and got an internship at a film production in the lighting department. And I still remember it was a very small television production. And as an intern, you kind of made to carry things. So you ask. But then when you're into the process, you kind of realize what tools are needed. So I took pride in anticipating what would be, you know, I wanted to be the one when the gaffer turned around to ask for a certain tool that I had in my hand already. And I still remember that in one of the moments I was sitting with the director and there was nobody to do the clapperboard. And they asked me, so, do you want to quickly do the clapperboard? I did the clapperboard, you know, and I sat down next to him, it was a very intimate scene. And he said to me, you must have done this before. And I said, "No, no, this is my first film. So there was something that really deeply resonated with me and I fell so much in love with it. And then I applied to film school. <laughs> But I do think that in cinematography, you know, film is all about rhythm and timing, and especially when you set up shots. I mean, I wasn't aware of the score yet because at the time when we shot Pachinko, you know, those decisions would be brought on later in the course of post-production where I would, of course, not be present anymore. But when you operate a camera, which I did for 20 years, it's just, it is like a musical instrument in a way. It's a visual musical instrument. It doesn't make sounds, but the way that you follow somebody or the way you pan. And I was collaborating on Pachinko, I was collaborating with a director called Koganada, who is uh, in his own legacy of a, a video essayist. That's how he started. And I knew his video essays. He did a very, very beautiful one about the neorealism, uh, about Ozu, of course, and about Kubrick. And I those are very rhythmic pieces of condensed essay about neorealism, for example. And so when we collaborated, he's very much a director that comes from a very, you know, for lack of better words, for like, from a formal understanding of filmmaking, it doesn't mean it's like formal as in terms of copying a form, but form is a way of thinking for him. So when we set up these shots, a lot of it was all about, do we want to cut, or is this a sequence where there isn't any cuts? So if there isn't any cuts in there, there won't be you have to put the rhythm and the timing to the shot whilst you execute it. And that's, I think, where that bridge is between music and filmmaking. When actually, when you don't cut and you have a sequence that will last for, you know, anywhere from 40 seconds to four minutes, if you want, or for 10 minutes, then it is all about the rhythm that you create live. We felt that the camera should not mimic that in any form. It almost has to have a internal confidence that makes you as an audience not nervous that you miss something. You have to feel as if I miss something, it's all right because it's going to come back. You know, you, that's that confidence. That was the key, I think, for how we approach Pachinko visually. And then another thing that Koganard and I spoke about at length is would you visually differentiate between the two timelines, the 20s and the 80s? And we both felt equally that we shouldn't. It should feel as if time is like not divided. You know, they will look different by the mise-en-scene and by the costume, of course, but the camera would not make an effort to distinguish between these times. So, because in essence, if you really think about it, all these times take place simultaneously in the head or heart of the main character in Sunja's head. Because as an old woman, she has had, this could all be her memory, and in a way, it is. it could take place live in her head. So I thought it was always important to have that confidence and don't try. I kind of live in my own work by the, there's a, a phrase I picked up from a director many years ago who said, don't put a hat on a hat. And I think in visual storytelling, you know, one can, it's almost about losing, leaving that ambition that one has for oneself, trying to transcend the identity of the work, you know, trying to make what's right for the film. And sometimes that means not to do anything. You know. If I connected with the visual storytelling, that again is about picking your choice with what the camera needs to do. So we talked about the confidence. The other thing is we felt really strongly that the camera should depict a sense of space as opposed to time. So you let time behind of us, you know, not thinking about it let the production design, the costume, and the actors do that work. But we really wanted to root the piece in this form of you an identity of home, so that when Sunja actually goes into immigration and goes to Japan, that we as an audience, when she goes into the tiny little part of Osaka, I think it is, and she sits in this tiny house that you suddenly, you can almost feel how her body must receive this New environment differently from where she started out, even though she was poor, but she lived on this island, you know, in this boarding house. So, so, this identity of space, that was what the camera really wanted to depict. I can tell you one thing that resonates with me when you say that. So, when I was at the first, when I read it for the first time, because i had worked with Suyu before on a show called The Terror. And so we knew each other and we had a, a, a relationship established of trust and even though i don't expect people to necessarily come back with the next piece you know you, you sometimes hope but sh- we were talking about the next project and she was sending me the scripts first as a colleague sort of saying not necessarily saying that she said just read it so i read it and i felt after the first two episodes i felt like man this is so specific am i really the right person to do this to photograph this and then there comes a, a scene in episode three where uh, Sunja, as a young woman, and for those who haven't seen it, she is pregnant from an older man that she is not married to. So that's pretty much, you know, sacrificing her life pretty much in those circumstances in the 20s in that village in Korea. And she comes across Isaac, who then is going to marry her, or who is a guy, a, a priest, who is a, a, on his journey to Japan. And he offers her to take her to accept the fact that she's pregnant from another man and to marry her. And that scene was so amazingly written because I felt that there were these 21 year olds or 22, however they were, and they were negotiating an absolutely existentialist crisis and an existentialist decision for their lives with such grace and so adult, you know, that it's really hard to find that in films. That's a couple of people will sit down and really negotiate. This is what's going to happen. This is what I want you to do. This is what I can offer. And she says, "I accept." And you know, they went, and she married him. And I felt that was very, very, very mature. And that was what really drew me in because then I thought, okay, uh, I just have to shoot this, <laughs> you know, because uh, in in a way, one wishes you could live your own life like that at times, you know, being exposed to a moment of crisis and reacting with such. Grace or such understanding of the other, you know. So every time I feel okay. What do you need? What do I want? What does the director want? How do we collaborate? You know what is generated during the collaboration? Uh, What ideas, questions come across? And then I can start constructing something like a look. But also, you know, it's like uh, with speaking a language. Filmmaking is pretty much a language. So the more you speak it, the more you know fluent you get. I see the world not as a square. I see it as some, maybe as animal, as a white screen. My own field of view is far wider. And I think when you start working in a square, you also tell a story about the world that you don't see. And you, you almost become more aware because of that. Maybe you become more aware of a, per, a person watching as opposed to the idea of generating and building a world that should feel real to me. You know, I only see it's like through a little keyhole. I see the world through a keyhole. To me, that introduces uh, a form of fantasy of, because I have to imagine, how does it look to the right or to the left? So that's what I define industry. Now, when you then come back and shoot with Todd, who's the writer, director, and producer of the film, it's all different. It's all about trying to expand the freedom you have almost into the unlimited. You know, you can drive people mad, but you it's all about dedicating yourself to the process and forgetting about any kind of economic or industrial obligation at all. I think it's a complex time. For cinematographers, the wave of content is, of course, something that everybody says, wow, there's so much good stuff. I absolutely share, you know, Martin Scorsese gave this interview, I think, at, the, at a film festival in Morocco. He's, and he was saying when he started out, it was really hard to make something, but it was easy when it's got, once it got, it's got made to have it seen. Now it's the complete difference. It's relatively easy to make something because everybody wants to make something and there are so many production entities that need content and produce, but it's very, very hard to have it seen because people will actually not take notice. You know, it might just be at some corner of the internet and people will not realize it very will? So I think it's a difficult time, partly because there's so much and also because a lot of what is out there just in terms of work and the way you have to dedicate your life to it is it's a lot of very long running. So I was away to shoot Pachinko. I left Germany in August and I came back in April next year with a break over Christmas. So the commitment you have to these things is is substantial. It's not just a film. You work for four months and then you can come back and you do another film. You might go as well. You almost dedicate yourself for almost a year, to do things. And that makes those decisions, What where do you see yourself, you know, very complex because it's not about the film anymore. It's like, where, how far is it from home? How much money do I make? How much time can I take off afterwards because I will get exhausted. I shoot everything in a series, you know, will I split my work with somebody else? There's so many elements. In general, I tend to base it on the script, if that speaks to me in one form or another. And then secondly, the cast, interesting actors. Like I said, with Rowan or as a physical comedy, that was appealing to me. Or didn't really matter that much if the script was, you know, Johnny English is not necessarily something that I always dreamt of doing. And then thirdly, the space, the place where it shoots. Is there something in the visual scenery that will, will I expose myself to either culturally or visually that will speak to me the next project I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot and I can't really say what it is unfortunately but I'll go to Iceland for eight months and, and i going to work there and that was one of the reasons why I thought I go is I want to spend some time there and Jodie Foster is the lead actress which is a you know, fantastic chance to work with her we hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.